Hello everyone, and thank you for tuning into this presentation. And usually I'm going to start almost at the end, and I can already hear faint cheers from some people. But I'm going to talk about what is known as a Swanson marginalia. The pencil annotation is made by the former Chief Inspector Donald Swanson in his retirement, which described what happened to Scotland Yard's prime suspect for the crimes of Jack the Ripper, and finally revealed his name. These notes were discovered long after Swanson's death, so let's start there. As is well known, Donald Swanson had enjoyed a highly successful career. When the Whitechapel murders began in August 1888, he was 40 years old and had served with the Metropolitan Police for 20 years, 12 of them as a detective in the CID. On 15th September 1888, he was appointed by Commissioner Sir Charles Warren to act as his eyes and ears, to scrutinise every report, every statement, every scrap of information which came to the police as a result of their investigations both in H Division and in Scotland Yard. It would be fair to say that he knew more than any other officer about the case alongside his superior, Assistant Commissioner Robert Anderson. Yet contrary to Anderson and some of his other colleagues, Swanson was not interested in writing his own memoirs and seemingly took the secret of the Ripper's identity to his grave. He passed away on 25th of November 1924, aged 76, and was buried at Kingston Cemetery, South West London. His papers, documents and other possessions passed to his widow, Julia. Eleven years later, on the 16th of May 1935, Julia herself passed away aged 81 and was buried alongside her husband. With son Donald Jr. raising a family in Lee in south-east London and second son James working abroad, daughters Ada and Alice were now the only children of Donald and Julia Swanson remaining at the family home on Presburg Road, in this way inheriting various papers, books and other possessions belonging to their father but they would not stay at New Malden long before moving out of London completely. <clears throat> the sisters moved to Edelsborough near Dunstable around 1942 and let the old family home, only for it to be damaged by enemy action during the war. It was subsequently sold at a loss. Alice and Ada lived for many years at an old cottage called Orchard Cottage. According to their niece Mary, keeping all their father's possessions and papers in an oak chest in the hallway. The two sisters remained together at Orchard Cottage until Ada died aged 93 in 1976, with Alice surviving until the 14th of November 1980, when she died aged 91. Her executor was nephew Jim Swanson, Donald's grandson. According to Mary Swanson, there was little time to inspect the possessions at Orchard Cottage because of the need to empty the property, so Jim and his elder brother Donald simply boxed everything up and removed it to Jim's home in Surrey. Amongst the effects were found a small number of books which had belonged to Donald Swanson. They had apparently been untouched for nearly 60 years, and when I asked Mary Swanson if the family had been aware of writing inside some of these volumes, evidently made by their grandfather, she said it had never been mentioned. In fact, in his small library of books, Donald Swanson had made at least a dozen examples of pencil annotations in the margins, sometimes correcting the printed word, and sometimes adding more information from first-hand knowledge. But it was in his former superior Robert Anderson's memoir, The Lighter Side of My Official Life, 
that the major discovery was made. On flicking through the pages, Jim Swanson discovered what is now known as the Swanson Marginalia. While the book carried handwritten comments on four pages and also the end paper, the major discovery was notes written on the margin of page 138, which carried Anderson's comments on the Whitechapel murders and his Polish Jew suspect. Where Anderson had written, I will merely add that the only person who had ever had a good view of the murderer unhesitatingly identified the suspect the instant he was confronted with him, but he refused to give evidence against him. Swanson wrote underneath in a purple-tinged pencil, because the suspect was also a Jew, and also because his evidence would convict the suspect, a witness would be means of murderer being hanged, which he did not wish to be left on his mind. DSS. At some later date, using a different grey pencil, Swanson underlined Anderson's identified the suspect the instant he was confronted with him, as well as his own comment, also a Jew, and added in the left-hand margin, and after this identification, which suspect knew, no other murder of this kind took place in London. Elaborating on this, on the end paper, Swanson wrote, continuing from page 138, after the suspect had been identified at the seaside home, where he had been sent by us with difficulty in order to subject him to identification, and he knew he was identified, our suspect returned to his brother's house in Whitechapel. He was watched by police, City CID, by day and night. In a very short time, the suspect, with his hands tied behind his back, he was sent to Stepney Workhouse, and then to Colney Hatch, and died shortly afterwards. Kosminski was the suspect. DSS. Swanson's granddaughter Mary recalled the discovery. When we were shown the marginalia, it was the first time that any of us had seen the name of the suspect, written very faintly in pencil. Jim must have realised the significance. I don't think DSS would have broken the police code to impart it to anyone, but we, in the family, had all been assured that the culprit was known. And a letter from Jim Swanson to Ripper researcher and author Paul Begg in November 1988 stated that no one in the family, not even my grandmother, had the slightest inkling that these notes had been made. At some point over the next few months, Jim Swanson decided to share the information in the marginalia with the public to hopefully obtain some long overdue recognition of his grandfather's work. On 26th of March 1981, he wrote to the editor of the News of the World, a Sunday newspaper with a reputation for printing sensational stories. He mentioned the upcoming trial of Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, writing that he felt it would stimulate interest in the Whitechapel murders of 1888 and offered for sale the information provided in Donald Swanson's notations, at the same time being careful not to reveal the name of the suspect in his letter. News of the World certainly was interested and sent their chief crime reporter, Charles Sandell, to visit Jim in order to view the material and find out what fee he wanted. On the 16th of April 1981, news editor Robert Warren wrote the letter shown here to Jim, confirming the agreement of £750 in return for exclusive rights to the information. As it turned out, the News of the World didn't run a story. Although Charles Sandell was keen to tell the story of Donald Swanson's career, 
He was unable to find anything on Kosminski, which would convince the newspaper's readers that this was Jack the Ripper at last. The story was shelved for six years. With the centenary of the Whitechapel murders fast approaching, in 1987 a rash of Ripper books were being prepared for release, including Martin Fido's The Crimes, Detection and Death of Jack the Ripper, which was reviewed by veteran Ripper author Daniel Farson for the Sunday Telegraph on the 27th of September 1987. This stirred Jim Swanson, a lifelong Telegraph reader, into action. The same day as reading Farson's review, he wrote to the News of the World asking to be released from the 1981 contract and to be given consent to share the information elsewhere. On the 1st of October, news editor Robert Warren replied to confirm. The following weekend, on Saturday the 3rd of October 1987, Telegraph printed a feature on the forthcoming centenary by Charles Nevin titled Jack, The Gripping Tale. Jim wrote that same day to the Telegraph offering sight of his grandfather's annotations, another documentation, suggested the truth could be published after others have had their speculative fling. On Monday 19th of October 1987, the story of Swanson's margin notes was finally revealed to the world when the Telegraph printed Charles Nevin's follow-up story. In it, the journalist confirmed there could scarcely be a better source than Donald Swanson, but highlighted the problems with some of Swanson's comments, such as the date of Kosminski's death and the venue of the supposed identification. So much for the history of the Swanson marginalia. There are many aspects which merit talk all of their own, not least who the suspect was and when he was incarcerated in Coney Hatch Asylum. But for the rest of this talk, I'm going to be discussing the subject which caused Charles Nevin so much head-scratching, the location of the seaside home where Kosminski was taken to be identified. So which seaside home was Swanson writing about? Generally assumed to be a reference to the Metropolitan Police convalescent home at Clarendon Villas in Hove, this immediately presents a problem, because that facility didn't open until March 1890. With Robert Anderson writing that the last Ripper murder was out of Mary Kelly, and Swanson agreeing in his marginalia, can we accept that the identification took place at least 16 months after her murder? Having read hundreds of documents written by Donald Swanson during my researches for writing his biography, I feel confident that had he been referring to the Metropolitan Police Convalescent Home, a reference made by a policeman about a police institution for his own personal use, he would simply have written after the suspect had been identified at Hove. It should be remembered that this, this was a time when dozens of convalescent homes operated around the country, many along the coast. Further along the south coast from Hove was the Metropolitan Convalescent Institution at Bexhill-on-Sea, which opened in 1881. However, this was a general convalescent home for any poor person over the age of 14, not a venue specifically offering beds for police officers in need. Would Swanson have arranged for a potentially dangerous suspect to be escorted by police officers to a venue where they would have stood out? 60 miles further still along the coast, under the auspices of the district of Dover, is a small picturesque village of St Margaret's at Cliff. And entering the local directory for 1889, prepared in late 1888, describes a building which is, in my opinion, of extreme interest. It reads, 
On the road from the village to the bay is Morley House, a seaside convalescent home for working men. This institution was opened in 1883 in connection with the London Hospital Saturday Fund and claims to be the property of working men, managed by working men, for the benefit of working men. There are now 36 beds which are kept full during the greater part of the year. Each, patient's, each patient pays five shillings per week towards his maintenance and the balance is made up by voluntary contributions from London workmen or their employers in the various workshops. During the 10 months of 1888, January to October, over 500 men have received the benefits of this institution. The London Sat the Hospital Saturday Fund was founded in 1873. Long before the existence of the National Health Service and with little government aid, London's hospitals and dispensaries were reliant on donations from the capital's workers. And with most of these receiving their wages on a Saturday, this was the day on which the fund would receive donations from businesses through collection boxes. President of the fund was Samuel Morley, a woollen manufacturer, Liberal Member of Parliament and philanthropist. The amount of money donated or sponsored by Morley to the many courses to which he was connected was so great that a friend was reported as saying, I should think he spends from 20000 to 30000 a year in benevolent works. The Hospital Saturday Fund had arrangements with a number of convalescent homes, including the Metropolitan Convalescent Institution at Bex Hill. But since its inception in 1873, it had been recognised that a seaside home was a necessity for patients leaving hospital who still required recuperation. And the trustees began looking for a suitable location at which to establish a coastal convalescent home. In 1883, a building was found, Marine House in St Margaret's at Cliff near Dover. Originally built as a private residence, a country house with a large old-fashioned garden, it was purchased in 1840 by James Temple, who ran the nearby Cliff House School for Young Gentlemen, and opened as a boarding school for young ladies. The census returned for the following year lists 22 pupils ranging from 10 to 18 years old, taught by three teachers under the auspices of Governess Susanna Eaton. Numbers steadily rose over the next 30 years, but by the time of the 1881 census, just 11 pupils were recorded at Marine House, although of course more could have attended living elsewhere in the village. Sisters Sarah and Isabella Bowyer run the school, seemingly teaching the pupils as well as acting as governesses. The struggles endured by Marine House School at this time were echoed in, the, echoed in the ownership of the building, which passed out of the hands of the Temple family in October 1880 to a Mr F Bowyer. Two and a half years later, on the 2nd of March 1883, the building was sold to the trustees of the Hospital Saturday Fund, who had selected the property after inspecting several seaside locations. The freehold of the house, along with seven acres of land, was purchased for £2,500. The location of the new convalescent home was ideal, sitting a hundred yards away from the cliffs at St Margaret's Bay. The stimulating sea air was conducive to recuperation. The journey to the home from London could scarcely be easier. Since 1861, the London Chatham and Dover Railway had operated a service from the capital to Dover, with trains departing from Victoria. 
A terminus was opened in the city on the 2nd of March 1874 at Hoban Viaduct and then at Snow Hill Station, which was opened five months later on the 1st of August, directly opposite the City of London Police Station of the same name. In June 1881, a branch line from Caresney, one stop before Dover, was opened, calling Martin Mill and Warmer stations on its way to Deal. Martin Mill Station, situated less than two miles from St Margaret's at Cliff, was where visitors to the new convalescent home would alight. Although an omnibus was available to take travellers from the station to the village, it's reported that many preferred to walk the short distance. The home was opened on Saturday the 30th of June 1883, when a crowd of around 400 people left London in two specially commissioned trains to arrive at Martin Mill early in the afternoon. Led by Samuel Morley, the Committee of the Hospital Saturday Fund was joined by a large number of those with an interest in the home, in the main working men and their wives. The occasion saw the building officially renamed Morley House Convalescent Home, and after inspecting the rooms and facilities, the party retired to a marquee which had been erected in the grounds. The report of the committee was read by Mr Robert Frewer, the fund secretary, who outlined that while Morley House was connected to the Hospital Saturday Fund, it was to operate as a separate entity funded by its own endeavours. Morley House would have to be self-sufficient. This was achieved not only through donations and numerous fundraisers, but by charging the workingmen of London a small fee in return for bed and board at the house at the home. In addition to a subscription fund, which maintained the institution, this saw dozens of London-based companies and individuals become annual subscribers, the majority based in the City of London. It was popular with workers from many different industries, as diverse as postmen, printers, railway workers and the London Fire Brigade. The City of London Police also retained a subscription. And over the years, hundreds of officers of that force would enjoy a visit to the home when recuperation was required, as underlined in December 1888 by the superintendent of the home, Charles Bray, when he wrote that the whole of the city police that have been sent to a home have come here. In fact, Morley House would prove so popular with the City of London Police that they would pay for the exclusive use of four beds and a sitting room. In 1892, the Daily News, commenting on the forthcoming opening of extension to Morley House, reported, The city police, whose benefit funds enable them to do the thing handsomely, are furnishing their own rooms in the new wing, and are served in almost luxurious style. They pay a pound a week for maintenance and a, room for their, and a rent for their own rooms in addition, and are treated altogether on a different footing. The City of London Police Wing was part of the extension, which eventually opened on the 2nd of September 1893 by Sir William Crundell, the Mayor of Dover, which included the Caxton Wings for members of the printing trade and the Wolverton Wing for London's postmen. One commentator, writing on the welcome increase in coastal convalescent homes, reserved special praise for Morley House. Not one of these homes presents upon the whole more than is gratifying than the Morley House Seaside Convalescent Home for Working Men. Everything about the place strikes one as being thoroughly sound and healthy. Everything, that is, by the little groups of invalids one finds here and there, about stretched on the little sheltered lawn, or snoozing in basket chairs, or patiently plodding their way with shaky limbs, 
or wheezy lungs out towards the blue sea. With its crisp waves and its swirling foam hissing and bubbling over sand and pebbles down below the chalk cliffs. The convalescents, of course, get all the benefits of sunshine and sea breezes and wholesome diet, and the effect of two or three weeks here is something marvellous on most of them. In some cases, indeed, the progress they make is almost alarming. One good man, for instance, was here for a month, and in the 30 days or so, he actually put on 32 pounds in weight. What he might have attained to if he'd settled here permanently, one is almost afraid to try and imagine. I tell you what it is, inmates are often heard to say, in effect as their time on leaving draws near. If I stay here much longer, I shall want another suit of clothes. These are so tight, I can't get into them. The presence of the City of London Police Force was, was reinforced by the fact that the honorary medical officer to Morley House was Dr Frederick Gordon Brown, divisional surgeon to the City Force who no doubt agreed that this combination of a healthy environment and solid diet accelerated the recuperation of his patients. Gordon Brown had volunteered his expertise at the Hospital Saturday Fund in the early 1880s and had attended the opening of Morley House in 1883. He and practice partner Dr Stephen Appleford regularly visited the home to attend patients where required. But in Dr Gordon Brown's case, his involvement was even greater as described by a reporter for the Daily News when writing of the system by which an inmate would be assessed for suitability for a bed at Morley House. A convalescent who wants to come here has to obtain a subscriber's letter. Armed with this, he presents himself to Dr Brown of the City Police, who carefully inquires into his fitness for the home. Every Friday night, the committee sit at the office at 39 Farringdon Road, to consider applications, and if they are able to comply, the convalescent goes down the following Monday. The London, Chatter, Chatham and Dover Railway from Holborn Viaduct takes him there and back for five shillings, and he has to pay four shillings a week while he stays. The usual period is three weeks, so that a pound covers everything. Under exceptional circumstances, the stay may be prolonged a little, but as there are always more applicants than beds, this is not conceded if it can be avoided. While this report dates from August 1892, it must be considered probable that the same system had operated for many years, given that Morley House had been open for almost a decade by that point. Originally providing beds for 24 inmates, these had been increased thanks to the benevolence of Lord Wolverton to 36 in the summer of 1887. With day visitors taken into account, there were between 70 and 80 patients at Morley House at any one time at the end of 1888. In the three months of September 1888 alone, some 200 admissions had been granted. With all this activity going on, it would be unlikely that a small group of men comprising a witness, a suspect and a police escort or two would stand out. The identification almost certainly took the form of a confrontation rather than a formal line-up. Robert Anderson stated as much in his memoirs by writing that the witness unhesitatingly identified the suspect the instant he was confronted with him. All the police had to do, therefore, was to engineer a chance meeting of the two men in order to observe the reaction of both. And this could have taken place anywhere within Morley House or the grounds, quite possibly in the City of London Police's sitting room. The suspect would have been escorted to the home 
by City of London officers, perhaps having first been detained at Snow Hill Police Station, although not formally arrested. The witness may have been recuperating at Morley House, or more likely invited there on the pretext of viewing the home for the purpose of taking out a subscription, attending as a guest of a city police officer. With the reaction of the witness confirming immediately that he recognised a suspect, the police would have been confident they had the right man. As for the suspect, Swanson wrote in the marginalia that he knew he was identified. Despite not having a witness prepared to testify, the promising result of the identification was not wasted, as the police now had confirmation that this man was indeed a prime suspect. As Anderson would later write many times, the moral proof of guilt existed, at least as far as the police were concerned, but the legal evidence to convict did not. The result of the seaside home identification, therefore, would not have been much use on its own. Further evidence would have been required, or confirmation from another independent witness that this was the right man. The episode was probably carried out simply to test whether the suspect was indeed a person of interest, and with this confirmed, he was returned to Whitechapel and placed under continual surveillance. Modern commentators have said that the identification would have been illegal, but as Commissioner Sir Charles Warren had confirmed to the Home Office in November 1888, he was quite prepared to undertake the most drastic measures which would further the securing of the murder, however illegal, providing the government would support him. This would not have been an issue to the police. Sadly, no records from Morley House survive, appear to have survived, so it is impossible to say for certain that the identification took place there. But bearing in mind that Donald Swanson wrote in the marginalia that a witness was a Jew, he was probably one of the three men who saw Catherine Eddowes with a man on the corner of Church Passage. Her subsequent murder was a City of London police investigation. Swanson also stated that following the identification and the suspect's return to Whitechapel, he was watched day and night by the city CID. Here, we have a seaside home whose medical officer was a divisional surgeon of the City of London Police. The same force paid a subscription to maintain beds and a private sitting room at the home. Getting to Morley House was extremely easy, with a direct train running from opposite the City of London Police's Snow Hill Station. And it was also part of Dr Gordon Brown's job to monitor the health of City of London Police suspects. It is interesting to note that Swanson said the suspect had been sent by us with difficulties rather than taken by. Had the trip to St Margaret's Bay been organised by Swanson but executed by his city colleagues? I suspect that the problems no doubt encountered devising such a plan between the two forces with the logistics of arranging for the suspect to witness at the home at the same time was the difficulty referred to by Swanson. And Morley House is the only instance of a convalescent establishment been explicitly referred to as the seaside home, when it says Superintendent Charles Bray called it such in an article for a charity periodical in December 1888. In addition to the City of London police links to Morley House, it is interesting to note that Rob Anderson, who wrote with such certainty that Ripper had been identified, was a close personal friend of Sir William Crundall, who was the Mayor of Dover in 1888 and indeed for several years preceding this. 
The Assistant Commissioner was a frequent visitor to the Kent Coast, both in an official capacity and also enjoying holidays there with his family. With Scotland Yard officials regularly visiting the port towns in response to activities of professional thieves on board the cross-channel ferries, Anderson had been presented with a free pass between London and Calais by the London Chatham and Dover Railway, who also operated steamers across the Channel. And this privilege was continued into his retirement. He would no doubt have known Dover and the surrounding area very well. Intriguingly, researcher Sean Crundle learned from his father that during the 1960s he'd been told by his own father, Harold Crundle, that Jack the Ripper was a Shylock and that there was a Dover connection. Harold's uncle was Sir William Crundle, who, he further claimed, was a friend of the Chief of Police. Although this is family oral history with as yet no evidence to confirm the story, it is interesting to consider the possibility that Robert Anderson may have divulged details of the seaside home identification to his friend Sir William, who in turn passed it to family members, and that information similar to the Swanson marginalia may have been only independently some 20 years before those notes were discovered by Jim Swanson. In the years following the Whitechapel murders, Morley House went into decline. A disastrous decision to incorporate it with St Andrew's home at Folkestone in 1905 marked the beginning of the end for the St Margaret's Bay convalescent home. St Andrew's, home for working women and children, had large debts, which were transferred to Morley House. And despite struggling on for a few more years, Morley House closed its doors in 1908. The building lay empty until the outbreak of the First World War, when the bedrooms were used by the army by, for sick and wounded soldiers. In 1920, the National Deposit Friendly Society bought the building and renamed it Portal House, operating it as a convalescent home similar to Morley House, and this photograph was taken on the opening day. It was closed at the beginning of World War II and came under government control. In 1959, Portal House was reopened as a Kent County Council home for 66 elderly people, and when this closed in 1975, thought was given to it becoming a hostel for the homeless, but this was rejected on the grounds of cost. It became a school for children with emotional, social and mental health needs in 1977, a function it continues to fulfil today. Early in 2016, part of the Victorian building, the 1893 extension, was demolished and replaced with modern, purpose-built school rooms. When I visited Morley House in 2014, the head teacher kindly allowed me to roam around the old building. Although decorated with paintings by the pupils and stocked with a multitude of educational equipment, the Victorian tiling, pipework and mahogany fittings made it easy to imagine it as a seaside home it had been when Dr Gordon Brown and others stepped across its welcome mat. Martin Mill train station too remains much as it was in the 1880s. It was a quiet wet Saturday morning when I visited for a closer look. It turned out that the platform for passengers returning to London was on the opposite side of the tracks to the station, access to which was through an underground tunnel. This is the view through that tunnel. I think we can all agree that very little has changed since 1888. Substitute the electric light for a gas lantern and it would have been very atmospheric indeed. Did Kosminski walk through this tunnel with his police escort on his way back to London? 
was it, in its own way, a witness to the identification of Jack the Ripper? Thank you very much.